This week on Silicon Reel, we have Alethea Navarro, CEO and co-founder of Skimlinks. It took me a year of pitching to, to raise my first seed round. Despite how difficult it is to raise money, it's easier than actually growing a company. You have to be driven by wanting to build a great company. Valuations don't matter, terms matter, and being here tomorrow matters. Hiring and training people is a hard thing. So you want to create an environment where people want to stay. To be part of the world that is creating our future, I think is, is one of the most creative things and important things to be doing right now. Silicon Reel presents Alethea Navarro. Skim links. Take ego out of the equation and just focus on doing a good job. In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Reel. It's about the people. This is Silicon Reel, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. My guest today is Alethea Navarro, who is the CEO and co-founder of Skimlinks, which helps publishers earn revenues and gain insights from their commerce-related content. You guys automate the affiliate marketing process, turning product links into revenue generating affiliate links. Uh, you work with one and a half million sites around the world, uh, drive annual e-commerce sales of $625 million through your platform, 80 plus people, San Francisco, New York, London. Uh, you work with publishers such as The Independent, Hearst, Gawker Media. You are the child of Spanish migrants to Sydney, Australia, where you got your computer science degree. We're all immigrants here in London. Even the English are immigrants. You know, when they finally figure it out, I think <laughs> I'm an immigrant. Um, Alethea, welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you, Brian. Delighted to be here. Um, I'm really glad you're here. I think this is going to be fun. We were having a little conversation in the kitchen earlier. Sometimes the best parts of the show are left in the kitchen. So it's, it's horrible because I meet people and I'm like, don't tell me that. <laughs> you know? I try to like burn it into my mind so I can bring it up later so I appear interesting. It's like anti-rapport building what I do. So, uh, But it's something we have to do. So we're, we're saving it all for everyone watching. Uh, one word comes to my mind when, uh, when I think of you. And it's a word we hear a lot around in this industry. I guess it's called pivot. And if, <laughs> if you don't uh, live in the tech world, uh, the first time I heard that word, I think I was being taught basketball when I was a kid. And so if you don't use that word in this industry, people don't know what you're talking about. Some call it a euphemism. Some call it a business reality. Some just call it tech jargon. Uh, I've done it myself many times in my small media iteration. Sometimes I do it in my mind, like on my way to work. I've pivoted three times and I'm kind of back to normal. But I was wondering if you could tell me what that word means to you. Is it something that, that's used too often? Is it used accurately? I know in 2006 you started with Skimbit, and that's the reason I bring this up. Tell us about the art of the pivot or what it means. Oh, a nice uh, esoteric question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think of it as something deliberate as a pivot. I mean, when you're actually going 
through that nightmare of your business and your dreams failing, it's more like a survival mechanism. It's it's whatever you need to do to to, to get through another day. Um, so we you know we we started with a totally different company. It was a B two C social decision making tool, like a very ugly early Pinterest, um, and and that just didn't work. And I was either going to lose all my money and fail, or I had to find a solution. So in retrospect, it's called a pivot, but at the time, it's mere survival. Right. Okay. And so is that term overused these days or is it just a term that any small business has been using since the beginning of time? I I think it's probably very prevalent at the moment because of the um, popularity of kind of agile methods of product development where you're you're not setting off on day one with you know a, a long-term vision you're starting off with you know a small idea that you validate you build you validate you build you validate you build and so there's a lot of pivoting that goes on throughout that process as you learn about the market learn about your customers learn about um, what your capabilities are. Um, so there's a lot of kind of mini pivots that uh, companies go through. Um, and there's probably also a lot of people that are lured to the idea of entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism that, that basically say, I want to be an entrepreneur, now I need to come up with an idea. And, and, and so the idea may not work out, and so they need to pivot. Whereas, I guess, before this kind of cult of entrepreneurship started, you started with an idea, and then you became an entrepreneur as, as opposed to the other way around. Right. So it's the rock star effect. Are we putting the, the, the card ahead of the horse in, in a certain sense with that? I, I think that that is a trend, certainly. Right. There's something called uh, cognitive biases, and, and it's one of my, my I guess, from London Real Talks that says that we have 25 cognitive biases as humans. One is called the reciprocity bias, like when the, the, the waitress brings you a mint before you get the tip, and then you tip her more, and you're <laughs> yeah. like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But it works. And one of them is media bias, like what we see in the news, and we see the Zuckerbergs, and we see the, the um, Ubers, and we see that, and we're like, oh, that, that's what this is. And then um, I've spoken with 80 people here, and I visited their offices, and it's quite a different thing, you know, when it comes down to tech reality. Can you just tell me, has it always, I mean, you've been in this business for a long time now. Has it always been that way or is the media now much more pronounced than it used to be? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, so when I started, it was about seven years ago and, and there was certainly, um, uh, an attractiveness to the concept of entrepreneurship, but, um, I think that it was very hard. And so there were, um, fewer people, I guess, that kind of got into it. And so it wasn't as glamorous. Um, I think it's been a kind of double-edged sword over the last probably three or four years where, um, you know, the good side of it is there's a recognition that to make this country and, you know, you know all developed countries really great, that um, a degree of um, enterprise needs to be fostered amongst its community, particularly its young. There's also been coupled with that a lot of um, the success stories of the Facebooks and so on and these sudden billionaires. So it's created this mini gold rush of sorts uh, of people that think, right, I want to be rich. In the old days, it was to be a lawyer or a rock star, now it's to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and so I think that there's a whole vicious or virtuous circle, whichever way you look at it, that's going on of people that kind of see successes, want to emulate it. There's a whole industry that springs up around it. Government recognizes that there is a lot of good that can come from it uh, in terms of um, uh, job growth and you know, technology innovation. Um, and it just created this 
uh, mass swell of interest in the space, I think. And is it more so here than in, in the UK than in the US? No, you... both. I mean, you only have to try to rent an apartment in San Francisco to realize there's a lot yeah. of very wealthy people out there and a lot of people trying to be wealthy. Is that, I mean, I, I haven't been there recently. Is it really kind of crazy and hard to, is it a sustainable, that kind of wealth gap or? I mean, that's, that's a very uh, you know, broad global question, isn't it? I, I, I don't think it is. Um, but then every time someone says that, you know, people, I'm sure that people said that about London, you know, 100 years ago and, and yet it continues. I, I think it creates a lot of problems, but it also creates a lot of great innovations. It's a right. double-edged sword. Now, when you started Skimbit, you weren't even in the UK yet, right? And so you no. went from Australia to the UK. You've made some acquisitions in the States. You spent two years in San Francisco. I mean, after going on that journey, what is your view of the different kind of ecosystems? I mean, is there, it's hard in, in Australia to raise capital, right? I think now it's a lot easier. But okay. when I started, this was 2006, um, I, I basically had spent you know nine months building my first version of my website using a team of developers in Romania, uh, working nights and weekends while I had a full-time job. And so I finally had this you know, great website and I went to the one VC <laughs> that focused on kind of tech startups in Australia at the time. I pitched, he didn't like it. And then that was it. And, and so, <laughs> Over. <laughs> right. Okay. So I, I, I decided to, to do what all Australians do, I guess, uh, at that point in time and did a kind of walkabout and went and just left my job for six weeks and just went traveling to try to try to find the answer. Um, and during the, that, that travel, I went via London. Um, that's where I had the concept to change Skimbit into a kind of white label version of that technology. Uh, and being there and seeing... The opportunity in the scene in London was the driver for me to go back to Australia, pack up my my life, sell my car, sell my furniture, give up my apartment, and uh, move back to London to be a full time penniless entrepreneur at the age of thirty. Okay, and that was oh eight ish. That was uh, at the end of two thousand and seven. Okay, um, is that right? Yes, uh, and and it was a great time. I mean, I. I those early days, the beginning of 2008 was a really exciting time, I think, to be an entrepreneur in London because it, there, weren't, there wasn't the support structures it was now. So we really depended on each other a lot more than I think perhaps happens now. And so the friendships that I formed at the time with um, a lot of those entrepreneurs, like the people from Huddle and Wayne and Trusted Places and so on, uh, are now kind of my, my best friends in the world. Um, and it was, it was a very vibrant um, exciting time, despite it being a, a smaller scene than it is now. Right. Wasn't Skimlinks the original tech company in the roundabout? I mean, you were one of the... Uh, yes. We moved <laughs> to roundabout. Before it was cool, It was there was basically Moo, Doppler, and Skimlinks. And that was it in the early days. Okay. I mean, I, that's that's like in the tumbleweed <laughs> days. The tumbleweed. I think of tumbleweeds going around the roundabout. Mm. I mean, you know, I, we've had Alex Hoy in here, Abindi Karia, people that were there back in the day. And I don't. I think it's hard for people to understand the difference because that's six years ago, and just recently, Old Street Station got a makeover. Yeah. But you know, even you know, three four years ago, it was just pretty dodgy over there. Not to mention two years previous, right? I really. I mean, I didn't move to Old Street by choice. I was at the time <laughs> renting a, a desk from. Uh, kind of 
this kind of person that was incubating me of sorts. Um, and that was, uh, we were originally on um, Long Acre in Covent Garden, which okay. was lovely. I loved right. it. But they decided, nice. oh, no, we have to move. They bought a building in, in, on Paul Street here, uh, just around the corner from yeah. you. Uh, and I was like, I had to move. I had nowhere else. I had a free desk and I was going to take it. So suddenly I'm like, what am I going to do all the way out east? This is ridiculous. Um, but in the end, it kind of turned out to be a lucky accident. Right. So you kind of you kicked it off. You're the reason we're here. <laughs> yes, you must all bow down before me. <laughs> I want to ask you about raising money. I had asked you a couple questions before the interview, and you, you wrote me, uh, I've raised five priced <laughs> rounds of funding, two convertible notes, and three rounds of debt financing so I can raise money. That's probably more raising than I've had with 80 different companies here. You know, I don't think anyone has really has that kind of series. What, what, what did you learn about <laughs> raising money? And, yeah, what, 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 what can you tell us about it? Try to do it as less often as you need to. <laughs> it is distracting. It is demoralizing. It is atrociously hard. And even like really, unless you're like the 1% of companies that are an absolute slam dunk and you've got like 20 offers at your table, which doesn't really happen. It's very hard. It takes time and it's distracting. Um, and there's a thousand things I'd rather do. But you, so if I could do it all again, I'd probably raise fewer rounds of a larger amount. Um, yes, it involves slightly more dilution, but um, as long as you maintain a slow burn despite raising a lot of cash, it just gives you a lot more runway and a lot more clarity uh, of focus, um, which is the biggest detractor. I mean, I, I see a lot of other startups that are raising very small amounts, like 50K here, 100K there, and it just means that they're, A, constantly fundraising, which means they're not growing the business, uh, and two, it just, it, it, it's never enough money to do anything important. You're never going to hire a great employee with that kind of money. You're never going to really invest in a, in a difficult problem. Um, and so for companies, I, I, I'm encouraging of raising as much as you can at any point in time um, because fundraising is not a fun process. Okay. There's an article that came out in TechCrunch a week or so ago, and it was someone, I think, in the States. And they, it was about the, the, um, the act of announcing your fundraise. And they announced the fundraise raised like six or nine months after they actually did it because they didn't want that to be a media event in itself. They wanted their product to be the media event or their success with a client to be the media event. And he just said, can we just stop with the, you know, press releases for funding rounds and get on and be grown up companies and let's, you know, talk about the real news. And I thought it was a great article to read. It was sandwiched between some funding round articles on TechCrunch. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I mean, I agree. I all this press release stuff is just a means to an end. Uh, a funding press release is about, you know, it's good for raising profile and so on, but it's, it's, a, it's a shambles. All it tends to mean really is that a lot of recruiters call you up the next day <laughs> thinking that you have a lot of money. Um, and we, you know, we did close our round months ago. It wasn't, it's not something that we've done this year. Um, you just, it just wasn't an important thing to make the announcement. Okay. I had Nick Brisbane in here of Forward Partners and, you know, we had just heard about the announcement in, in TransferWise and it was a big thing, I guess, because, you know, Ben Horowitz is first European board seat and these are big strategic things and, and I'm so happy for them. But I also was asking him, I said, you know, this concept of valuation, you know, is it the fact that it's a billion or uh, Uber is 40 billion or should we think of it that there's just some more money being raised to see if they can get to their next point to get to their next point you know again this media bias do we just get caught up in these bright lights and big numbers sometimes and not focus on the fact that these companies are like you got it's like a video game donkey kong or something you gotta get from here to here or you die and then here to here you die is there a better way we should think about that should we stop should we just make a moratorium on even talking about valuations valuation is interesting because it, it well 
fundraising is interesting because it's a validation of a milestone. It's that enough people believe in your journey and in your story that they're willing to invest and join you in that journey. That's exciting and that is worth celebrating and it's hard. But raising money is not the hardest thing that you do in a business. And I think um, the companies that focus too much on that lose sight that actually, despite how difficult it is to raise money, it's easier than actually growing a company. You know, there are at least rules and processes that you go through to raise around. Whereas once you've got that money in the bank, you know, then you've got infinite possibilities and an, and an immense amount of pressure on your shoulders to actually do something. So I think those the celebrations of... Um, sorry, the, the successes that people have once they've raised money are probably more worthy of celebration than the round itself. Okay. And what advice do you give to young entrepreneurs when they're going to raise their funding? Let's say they're going for a series A or an angel round and, and in their mind, they want to the 10 million valuation. I don't know why. And uh, I was having a chat with a buddy of mine who just finished with Imperial college here, a master's degree, and he's gone to New York and he's interviewing with a startup and he was like, I'm going to get a point and, uh, but I might get a half a point. And I was looking at him. I'm like, you don't even care what it is. It's just in your mind. So you want to tell your friends that I got a point or a two points, but you don't even know what that means. It's, it, it's, it's, it, it, am I making a point here? <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, and, and it's something that we then have to train our employees about as well. Like the percentage that you get as a, as an employee is utterly irrelevant because the valuations change, the terms change. What matters is what your shares are worth now and what they would be worth at a particular exit. In the future, and that and that's worth talking about as an employee. Um, but the, I, I have a very kind of um, firm view about um, valuations because I see a lot of young startups trip up on it and become obsessed with the valuation. And there's a number of really bad things that happen if you do that. Um, the first is that if you get too high a valuation, you will struggle then to get a follow-on round, particularly one at an uplift in valuation. Right. That's I mean, a huge point to make, especially right now in the enormous. market. It's enormous. It's enormous. And it happens so all the time. If you, if you do get what you want and raise money at this big valuation, you might be... You're setting yourself up for failure for later. For failure later. And yes. you might get the great press release and all your friends from college will say you finally made it. But in, in, in reality, you've made it harder for you. Uh, very much so, uh, unless you kind of absolutely slam dunk it out of the park. Uh, that's a bit of cross metaphors there. Um, unless you do ext- extremely well, um, you will struggle then to um, get a follow-on round because further further rounds of funding are much harder. And um, one of the great things, I mean, we've always um, had up rounds, so we've done five price rounds. Everyone has been an uplift. And, and so the story is great. We've had follow-on investment from all our, um, uh, all our investors. Our investors are happy because we, you know, there's a great story that they can tell back to their, um, their partners, which is, you know, this company is continuing to grow in valuation. Our, our stock is continuing to increase in, in value. These are the things that actually matter if you want to be a long-term company. Um, and I know invest, uh, entrepreneurs sometimes obsess about, well, that, that dilutes me too much, you know. And the thing is, if you're worried now about what you're going to walk away with in five, six, seven, eight years' time, I, I just think it's just the wrong thing to focus on. What matters most is um, are the terms good? Um, are the investors you're getting into bed with the kind of people that you want to be with for the next five to ten years? Um, and is it are you leaving yourself open for the next liquidity event, whether it be a fundraise or an exit? Um, because if you price yourself too high, the likelihood is you're not going to survive beyond the next round. Okay, those are three things. Terms good. What's a, what's a good example of good terms or bad terms? Um, making sure that you retain a degree of power. Um, making sure that, especially in the early days, there's not... Um, uh, nasty liquidation preference terms, um, 
uh, making sure that um, uh, yeah, the, the it's mainly around control and around how the shares are distributed afterwards. Also, things around warranties. Um, th- th- there's just a sea of um, terms that make uh, a more important difference. And we've we've like chosen lower valuations that have been offered to us because they came from a investors that we liked and b in terms that were more favorable to us long term. Okay, investors, the right investors. How do you choose them? I mean, I've heard this a few times from people that have been on here that people just jump at the first check that they get and they never even met these people, mm-hmm. let alone about to get married to them. <laughs> how do you? How do you? How do you know if it's a good investor? How do you know if it's a good partner? <laughs> you know, it's it, if you think about it, you'll end up attached to your VC for longer than longer your, than your okay. relationships. Right. Uh, it, it's true. I mean, my seed, my seed round happened, you know, six years ago now. And that, that investor is still involved in my business. Luckily, you know, he's great and we get along very well. Um, but, you know, I've also had investors that have not had their interests aligned with me and it causes incredible problems down the line. Um, and I've seen it happen again and again and again to investors that you know, don't really believe in what you're doing, and so they won't follow on in your investment. And there's nothing worse to the outside world than if your initial investor doesn't follow on or um, isn't or steps down. You know, that the, the whole world of, of funding is full of signals, and you have to, you know, that's one of the things that you learn after years of doing this. There's a lot of little things that you need to, to manage, um, and choosing the right investors and choosing a valuation that allows you room to grow. Um, helps you manage those signals that will help you secure that next round. Okay. So don't be greedy in your valuation. I was once told, yeah, valuations don't matter. Terms matter and being here tomorrow matters. So as long as you're here tomorrow and the terms are not bad and it's a valuation that gives you, you know, that's not incredibly dilutive, it's a good thing. So when you're getting your raise in your round, think about the next one and think about, okay, well, if it wants to be a higher one, then it's going to be this. And is that even realistic? And, and frankly, in the end, valuation is purely, generally is purely a matter of how much you raise. So if you want to raise, you know, uh, basically almost every round will be 20 to 30% dilutive on average. So whatever you raise, you know, that times five is going to be your post money valuation. Right. So it's not that complicated (laughs) at the end of the day, each raise, you're going to be selling 20% of your company. And so that's five times. And basically if you can't raise that 2 million, you can only raise half a million. Well, that means your valuation is 2 million pounds, not the 20 that you wanted. That's just the way it is. Unless again, you're transfer wise and you're, you know, Right. Absolutely beyond exceptional. Right, which is what we read about all the time. Right, okay. Let's talk about company culture. It's something that we haven't really dove into too much here on the show. I don't know why, but I know it's something you're very proud of. It's something you work very hard about. So, yeah. And it's something you built from scratch, I guess. Can you tell me what those words mean to you or, or what, what it means to you as a company culture and how you make it happen? I know you, know, you moved back to London for part of the reason because you wanted to be face-to-face with your employees. So tell me, tell me about Skimworks. Yeah, it's, it's one of those funny words, isn't it, that when you actually try to define it, it can be a little bit complex. But the way that we think about it is um, how do we create an environment that, that creates the results that we want out of the company. Um, and by results, it's not necessarily just financial results, but you know the, the softer side of things that make your day worthwhile. Um, ultimately, you know, hiring and training people is a hard thing. So you want to create an environment where people want to stay, where people are happy, and where people are performing at their best. And so you create a culture that attracts the kind of people you want to work with and makes them happy. And so for us, that means creating, and and our, you know, Skimlinks culture um, is very much one about celebrating each other, about that cheeky sense of humor, about 
um, uh, a unique kind of sparkle to them. And, and actually, after a while, we, we recognized that we needed to define that. And so we came up with, we actually have a name for it in our company, which is Hash Skim Love. And it came about very organically. Um, it happened as a result of, um, on our Yammer board, um, we would like to celebrate each other's wins. Um, and not just each other's wins internally, but we believed passionately that the best way to win as a company externally was to sell ourselves, not just our product. And so me and all our sales team and everyone that's customer facing, when we go out into the world, we project goodness and, and, and heart and and sincerity. And we believe that that is fundamental to the reason that we've succeeded as, as a company. You know, customers uh, choose us and are loyal to us because they love that quality. And so whenever we would celebrate a win, we would we would say, you know, hey, we won this client, hash skim love. And, and so it became a kind of meme in our office. Okay. And, uh, and, and then we break it down into what it means. So we break down each of the letters. So S is about the sparkle in the eyes, you know, the fire in the eyes that you see in someone that you just recognize as a kindred spirit. K is about being kick-ass. I is about being inventive. M is about being master of your domain. L is about being likable. O is about being open-minded. V is about being vocal. And E is about being entrepreneurial. And, uh, and, and that's our culture. That's awesome, <laughs> what you just said. I'm trying to think of what ours is going to be. And so these were characteristics that were always inside of you, I'm guessing, that you always wanted to nurture at the company, but you just kind of spelled them out recently with that. Yeah, hashtag. yeah, yes. As, you, as we got bigger, it became useful to, um, to define what was previously uh, an unspoken and, and very accepted thing. But yes, in the early days, it wasn't a, it's not something like I went on, on day one, decided, right, what's going to be my culture and, and wrote it all out. It was a very organic thing that was driven by both me and my co-founders personalities, I guess, and the way that we chose to lead um, and the people that we chose to hire. And those are the kind of the, bu- the building blocks of, of culture. And, and those early employees are so important because um, everything then flows on from from those people, and particularly in the early days, we were ruthlessly um, focused on choosing people that not only um, had the right kind of experience, but were the right kind of people that had the fire in the eyes. That there was a uh, a, a, a magical spark. It sounds like a very wishy washy no, thing to doesn't. say, but <laughs> it's the same way that you recognise a friend or a partner. Like there's something that happens chemically, and so we kind of looked for that in our in our early team, and still now we still look for it. Um, and it means that when you walk into Skimlake's offices, you can feel it. There is there is a sparkle in the air. Even our cleaner, when she walks in, she says walking in to our office is the favourite part of her day because of the energy in it. And that's because of the amazing team that we have. What happens when someone's not sparkling enough? Do you pull them aside and you say you need to sparkle more? <laughs> Every team can, I think, uh, we, we say that we can accommodate, you know, up to 5% of people that aren't necessarily like that. And, and as you get bigger, it, it evolves, it matures. It's not all kind of, yay, aren't I amazing? It's sometimes it's a quieter ferocity or, um, you know, a, a distinguished intelligence that, I sound pathetic, but <laughs> but it, it 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 manifests in slightly different ways as you get bigger. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. It means that there's a there's a there's a 
there's a something okay. that, you, that, you, that draws you to them and, and helps us feel like a team. So many people watching us are founders or they want to be founders or they're interested in this industry. And you just said that, you know, a lot of people get caught up in fundraising when they should be thinking about the product and then they should be thinking about their first hire. And now they're thinking we got to find our own hashtag, Alicia. <laughs> so what, where does that process come in? And funny enough, we're doing that right now at London Real and Silicon Real. We're trying to really write down exactly what makes us different and what yeah. we're all about. And it's fascinating. And it really is interesting just to find out, well, what are we about? And, you know, you have an impression and your co-founder has an impression and your employee one to three. But how important is it to sit down and hash that out before you build your product? Oh, I, I no. I think that you build your product first, but just hire great people to start with. And okay. you only have to worry about, you know, well, I, I think that it's, Culture has to be something that flows naturally, I think. I mean, you can, you can create uh, things that help, uh, initiatives that help support it. So, for instance, you know, we, um, uh, what do we do? Uh, um, t- to foster kind of, um, gosh, let me think. Um, you can't mandate the skim love. No, no, but you can do things around it. Like, you know, we, we, we believe, um, you know, my co-founder and I are really strong believers that if you want, you know, the E in skim love, which is entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial people, part of our duty then is to be very open about the process and what we've learned and what mistakes we've made. So we'll sit down with our team and tell them about the fundraising process, what worked, what didn't work, what terms we negotiated for, so that our employees, who we've all hired because they too either want to be entrepreneurs or love being part of an entrepreneurial journey can get feel that they're part of it so that's one thing that we do to kind of enhance the culture um we also are um incredibly generous when things go wrong you know we we support our team and it's a very nurturing supportive place we've had some really awful awful disasters that have happened to certain team members and when you see how how the team stand together and it's driven by the examples that we set we're very generous financially and um and with our own personal time to make sure the whole team knows that we care about them and that being together means something okay tell me about laughter you said that's an important part of the uh, of the environment and it starts from you (laughs) Uh, yes absolutely i think that uh i I believe that if you're going to go and spend you know a majority of your waking hours uh, with a group of people, you want to kind of choose people that you want to be important parts of your life. And I want to spend most of my life laughing. Um, and and so we've again created a culture that is very tongue in cheek, very kind of self deprecating, very cheeky. And uh, and so as a result, it's incredibly fun on a day to day basis, alongside being very productive, of course. <laughs> okay, um, I mentioned Ben Horowitz earlier, and, and a part of the thing in his book was the hard thing about hard things, and and uh, he had to make a decision about swearing in the office, and I think he ended up pulling the office, and they and they made a whole decision and they finally realized that we are going to swear in the office because I think he found that overall it was the right thing to do. I don't know. He probably yeah. did a, a regression analysis or something. I, I again, that's um, the V in, uh, in skim love and the O the open mindedness are all about being open minded um, and vocal. So there is a lot of swearing. I, I make a habit of swearing um, every time I interview someone the first time, because if they're not going to be the kind of person that kind of, is comfortable with that and kind of grins and giggles at me when I swear, they're probably not going to cut it at Skimlinks. Can you give me an example? Say you're interviewing me. What would you say? And I'll try to react naturally. Um, you know, I, uh, 
you know, I'm really fucking passionate about this thing I'm doing. And, uh, and, and then you want them to kind of go, you know. Uh, did I react right? You <laughs> want to hire me? Right. I'd hire oh, me. okay. Well, you said it in a nice way. Because there's I, so I many ways you nice can swear. I don't, sw- say, I don't swear aggressively. It's right. not about it being aggressive. It shows your passion. It's about being passionate, about being okay. cheeky. Um, and, and, you know, we have a very diverse workplace as well. So we have, you know... Um, uh, lesbian, gays. We have 21 different nationalities. We have old, young. I, I fucking love diversity. <laughs> um, and so again, I, we will often mention, like, you know, one of my team is um, is a lesbian. So we will also sometimes, when she's interviewing with me, um, I'll mention something about, you know, your wife, because you want to see if the other person right. is comfortable with that. You, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're, and you spent a couple of years in San Francisco, and, you know, the Californians are just, they're, they are more open than this Brits, so. <laughs> well, I, th- I think British are more comfortable with swearing, though. Right, that might be true. Now, what if someone doesn't like swearing? Are you going to miss a good candidate? Um, or is it just a culture decision? And it's you- one, it's a, it's a signal, one of many, that you kind of try to pick up. Okay. All right. Now, look, you spent two years in San Francisco, okay? I'm from California. I live here now. You know, you, you were in London doing business. You went out there for two years, and then you came back. I, everyone has an opinion about that. Some people think everyone in San Francisco is aggressive, megalomaniac, walks around <laughs> like they're the king of the world, blah, blah, blah. But we also have to say the Yanks do a lot of things right. So what's your read on it, as honest as you can be? I was initially very nervous about moving to San Francisco. It, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a little bit easier here. You know, you're, a, a, you know, it's easier to be a big po- a big fish in a little pond. And um, going out there, it was, you know, how am I going to navigate? It's it's such a big scary place. Um, and you know, I think Brits are kind of a little um, teasing of Americans, rah rah rah, isn't everything great? Um, but to my surprise, I found. The people in San Francisco were just incredibly warm and welcoming, and it was incredibly easy to fall into a very nice lifestyle there. Hmm. Um, so the personal side of things was was great. Um, uh, I think, interestingly, on the personal side, I, do, I think it was... Americans are very good on the surface. I, I, I have a lot more deeper friendships in the UK, but I've got a lot more surface friendships in San Francisco. Hmm. That was another kind of odd characteristic that I saw. Okay. What about um, business practices? Is there something you noticed there where you're like, I want skin links to be like that? Um, and let's just talk something as simple as work hours or being in contact via email 24-7. Is that something you notice more there? Is that the right way of doing business or the wrong? Um, I can only talk so much as it affects my company, obviously. Um, so because... Uh, to maximize the number of overlapping work hours, the San Francisco office would start a lot earlier, but they would tend to finish a bit earlier. And frankly, the San Francisco, uh, our San Francisco office has a slightly more um, relaxed kind of lifestyle because they're not around the freneticness of the engineering team. It's a sales and marketing team. And as long as they kind of hit their quotas and are doing a good job, it's, it's a bit more relaxed. Um, that may not be the same in other companies. Um, but from what I saw, I think it's, it's, um, it's quite a relaxed lifestyle. Um, other working practices, I think it's uh, very competitive. Not many people stay employed with you for a long time. Uh, we've done very well, and we, again, because of our culture and the way that we treated our team, did a really good job of um, retaining great people over a very long period of time. Um, but I think unless you do that, it can be... Um, difficult to hold on to people because there's just so many great offers out there. Uh, and as soon as you, your company starts to do well, your, you know, your employees are going to be picked off. Okay. Did you bring back any American practices when you came back to Britain this time and says, we're going to do this different? No, uh, um, 
again, I don't know if I'm quite the right person to speak about because, you know, we created, uh, you know, a team in San Francisco that were very kind of uh, Anglophile. Right. Okay. And independent, right, from the engineering here. Okay. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about international expansion. So uh, a lot of British companies, of course, they're going to look west. They they kind of, I'm about to say they have to, but they don't have to. Damien Kimmelman from Due Diligence said, we don't need to go to America. You know, uh, a lot of companies are like, we don't need to go. Nutmeg, another great example. And they probably don't. But a lot of companies have gone. Why plan? There's tons of them going there. What did you learn or what should they learn when they go? Mm, That's a really good question. Um, We, we... We needed to go over there because for a B2B business, especially one where part of our proposition was our team's personality, um, face-to-face time is important, uh, as is being seen as American. Uh, What we found is that a lot of American companies like to do business with other American companies. They don't mind if you're British as long as you live in America, or at least you say that you do. And so that was one of the first things before I even moved over, um, I would go over there very often and I would be very complimentary of America. Um, Americans are very, very patriotic and, uh, and unconsciously xenophobic. So they like to do business with other Americans or people that love America. Uh, and so that's a really important thing for British people to understand. When you, uh, when you go over there, you know, sink into that lifestyle, try to understand some of the differences in their language, which can pull you up. They don't know what the word Fortnite is. They think it's quaint. Uh, you know, <laughs> Or a score. They don't know what a score is. Uh, there's a whole lot of words. So you've got to very quickly learn about these. Things like painkillers. They think you mean morphine. <laughs> or uh, don't say you're going to the toilet. That's very vulgar. You're going right. to the restroom. Right. So these things. And then I also found that um, in order to be understood, I would start to roll my R's. So I would say I'm here or I'm going to have a drink of beer because otherwise they don't understand you. Okay, so assimilate. To, to a degree. I mean, they love Brits and Australians, thankfully. They, they think the accent is, is exotic, um, which I think is hilarious. But, they, <laughs> but they, uh, uh, it, it's easier if they feel comfortable doing business with you and that they can recognize some of themselves in you. Okay. Talk to me about the state of technology in Britain, in London. Where are we going? Are there some big potholes coming up? Uh, I want to get your thoughts on SEIS funding. You know, what, the UK, <laughs> okay? You know, lately we see a lot of FaceTime from Boris and, and some people at number 10 and they're there at the thing. But then a lot of people say the government is doing positive things. Americans think the UK government is much more on board than, say, the American government when it comes to mm. tech. You know, what do you see there? Do you see FaceTime? Do you see tax incentives that are going to hurt us in the long run? What's your read? I, I mean, honestly think the UK government's done an awesome job supporting British entrepreneurship to the point where I, I'm glad my company's based here. I don't want to live in the US. Um, a combination of R&D tax credits, which literally saved my cash flow in the first couple of years. Um, EMI uh, stock options so that my employees get, you know, really well protected um, from a tax perspective with their stock options. American employees don't get that. Um, And entrepreneur's relief, which makes it really, really attractive to stay a UK resident uh, or or, uh, as as an entrepreneur. Um, I think the government's done an incredible job with the things that it should be meddling in. I think that sometimes there are expectations of the government to fix all your problems, like the cost of rent, like the cost of hiring, um, and that's that's not the government's... Well, I mean, the government can't fix everything, but I think that they've done a really, really good job to make it an attractive place to work. 
Okay. And SEIS tax credits to encourage funding. I mean, so many people have put money into tech and other industries because these incentives came out. Sometimes people write off the numbers. I'm I'm an American. I get globally taxed. I don't even think I can qualify for these things. But like (laughs) people say, it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. What's your read? I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, It's, I guess, uh, I know many people think it's it's a wonderful thing. I have a slightly... um, a different view, which is that it's sometimes it's giving money to companies that aren't ready for funding yet, that their ideas are not yet developed enough, and that you're funding ideas before that they've gone through the rigor of having to improve in order to get funding. You know, for for us, it took us it took me a year of pitching to to raise my first seed round. If I had raised an SEIS round in the first couple of months of pitching. I would not be here today. Absolutely not, because my, the idea I had a few months in was bad. And it was only being rejected again and again and getting awesome feedback from VCs as to why they weren't investing. Could I evolve my business to the point where eventually it was good enough? I did raise money, and, and here we are today. Um, and I worry about that sometimes, that if, if startups get funding before they've been tested enough, if they, you know... VCs, you know, a lot of them are really, really smart and it's really useful to pitch to them and get their feedback as to why this business is not yet ready. And it's an awesome opportunity to iterate and improve your business. Um, so I, I worry about that. Um, I worry that the companies that are getting funded um, are, are not yet proven and not ready for funding. Um, I worry that because it's such a small amount, um, you are not really getting the runway to do anything significant. You're not going to hire a great team of people. You're not going to be able to have an, a long enough runway um, to build an important product or feature that matters. You're going to be constantly fundraising, and that's distracting and, and destructive for your company. Um, the people that are funding via SEIS tend to not be experienced VCs. They might be often very high net worth individuals that can't really contribute um, to, to the product development. They don't really know enough about the scene and about technology to give feedback. I see that happen a lot. Um, and they're also not very sophisticated investors, and so they end up driving the cost up of legals um, and making the process much harder for the young startups. In, uh, and ultimately, and it also drives up the cost of uh, employees. It drives up the cost of rental properties. I, I think there are very, very few really, really big successful companies now that have started out of SEIS. Okay. So it almost like artificially floods those seed rounds and it ends up funding all these ideas that haven't been fleshed out, don't have the guidance, overspend in all these weird areas. And it kind of creates this weird, I guess it's not a bottleneck, but this kind of weird, I mean, maybe it, maybe it is like having too many kids and they're all competing for the same. I mean, if the only way you can raise money is by someone that is putting money in you because if you fail, they'll get their money back. That's not a winning indicator that you're likely to be a success. You're, you're a tax write-off. And, and until, you're willing, until you find someone that's willing to invest, irrespective of it being SEIS, so the people that put money in thinking, I'm not going to get my money back, my money will lose, uh, I will lose my money if this is not a success, that, that's, that means your idea is ready for, for, for being something. Right, survival of the fittest. And that's what happens in America because they don't have that tax credit. Correct. Okay. And, but then also you're in San Francisco where you have people with exits and smarter money and more money out there. But yeah, okay, that's the trade-off. Talk to me about a liquidity event for you being acquired next level. That's something you have to think about as CEO and a co-founder. Yep. So what, what goes through your mind when the, the landscape constantly changes? 
Ah, um, I mean, it's one of those things that you can't necessarily plan for. I mean, the, the saying is that you know, you're not, you don't uh, sell your board, and uh, and it's it's very true. You know, you, the the best valuations come when you you don't want someone to buy you, but someone really really wants you, and that's how you get the great valuations. You know, with with a series, you know, companies that get to a Series C um, stage are in the kind of are getting the kind of valuations that make um, being acquired uh, a little bit more challenging. You know, you're not going to be something. You know, you can't be bought any longer for twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty million dollars, which is you know a lot of weight on one's shoulders. But that's you know w- when you believe enough in what you're doing and think your team is awesome, uh, and you're doing this because you love the process, not because you necessarily want to be rich tomorrow, then then you're in for the long run, and um, you have to be driven by wanting to build a great company um, because it's it's a long, lonely, scary ride if you don't believe that. Okay, but you have to be open-minded because the, the typical founder line is, <laughs> we're not going to sell, I'm here until I die, and we're building the greatest no, we'll company. we'll sell, we'll sell probably, um, uh, and I, but I think it'll hopefully be when it's, I mean, the ideal scenario would be that it would be, you know, that it would be a great return for my investors, a great place for me and my team, uh, and where we get to see the hard work that we've done for the last few years achieve even greater scale and success. That's, that's the goal. Um, I personally don't think that I, I mean, I didn't think I'd be able to do this job at this scale either. Every day is a new stage for me as well. Um, I, I was very comfortable being, you know, an early stage CEO. That was kind of easy. I was product manager. I did exactly what I wanted to do. Now, you know, there's 80 people. You've got to think about processes and scale and investor management, and it's hard, and I've got to learn how to do it every day. Um, I do get worried that, you know, at some stage, I may not be the right CEO for that company, um, and that's perfectly okay. At some stage, it may make sense to bring in um, someone that's better at managing a company of that size. Um, it's not yet. I'm, I'm, I believe I'm still the right person for that job. Um, but ultimately, I, I care about the success of the company and I, whatever my role is in that. You said you can't sell your board. What does that mean? Is Sorry? It, you said you can't sell your board. Does that mean they ultimately make an independent decision? What did you mean by that? Oh, I don't know if I said Oh, I thought I said you said that. you can't sell your board. Is that what you said? No. I don't oh, okay. Know. Maybe I Sorry. Maybe I'm missing, <laughs> misunderstood what you said. There's, there's, a, there's a thinking in Silicon Valley lately that founders should be the CEOs, that that mm-hmm. is the core of the company, whereas maybe years ago people were saying now it's time for a grown-up to run the company, but it seems to have shifted the other way. Yes, um, definitely. There's no, there's no way that anyone else would give a shit more than I do. Um, so yes, for as long as I'm capable of doing a pretty good job, I'm the right person for the job. Did I react well in that square as well? You, well, you okay. giggled. Okay, that, that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable, <laughs> the giggle. All right, I just lost my job opportunities. Um, what was I going to ask you about? We talked about SEIS real quickly, incubators and accelerators. I, I joke every week that there's a new one around the corner. I think there are 10 fintech accelerators in this, in this country now. I could be exaggerating, but I, I still expect the other 400 85 of the Fortune 500 companies to announce their new accelerator in London, and everyone's going to be like, hey. and then they're going to hire someone, and they're going to pump out the 100 people. I know I'm being a little brutal here, but am I going too far? Is this the case, or is this just knowledge, and we're helping people along, or is this, again, leading unproven ideas and people down the wrong path? I think that, oh, good question. This is um, real talk here. I at know, Silicon Real. I know. Yeah. I mean, I guess, let let me take it personally for a second. So when I started um, and I first arrived in London from from Australia, um, 
I was kind of incubated, I guess. There was uh, you know, a great guy who was a finance director for a company, um, and he gave me desk space. He helped me raise um, a, a loan from the bank, um, and he supported me with business advice. Um, and then for that, he got you know, a, a slice of equity, um, which I guess in today's terms would be an incubator, although at the time it was more just a great guy that helped me out um, and helped me build the business. Um, so I think from that perspective, it's, it's great if you can find someone or you know, a person or a incubator that can help you in those early days when you don't want to be distracted by paying rent or taking out the garbage. You, know, you want to be part of an entity that lets you just focus. That's, I think, a really healthy thing. Um, it's nice to go somewhere as well. Otherwise, you'll be working from home. It's lovely to go out of your home and actually be somewhere where you can be focused, where you can be around an energy that, that makes you want to succeed. So from that perspective, I think incubators are great. Um, I do sometimes worry, though, that... They're, again, uh, um, there's so many of them that they're basically, you know, filling up numbers based on, you know, oh, I've got to get, I've got 10, you know, 10 spots, I better find 10 companies. And maybe not all of those 10, you know, are going to be great successes. How do we fight this media bias of the next rock store is the, is the tech entrepreneur? I mean, how do we do that? I, I, when people like you interview people like me, I tell it like it is and, and, and tell, and I, you know, I, I, I've, I'm amused at, how negative I sometimes appear, I think, when I speak at events, because I'm not, I don't go out and say, all of you should be entrepreneurs. It's a great thing. You should all do it. It's amazing. I tell the truth, which is what all of my fellow entrepreneurs are thinking, but they often don't say, which is, oh my God, it's really hard. The suffering, the weariness, the loneliness, the fear. And it's not quick. It's seven years. I mean, there's a lot of great things about it. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do, and I'm happier than I've ever been. But it's not for everyone. And what it takes to get through those seven years and grow a company and retain exceptional talent is not spoken about often enough. And it's not something that necessarily everyone has, and that's not a bad thing. I think being part of a startup is amazing. Being the, the founder and the CEO that takes it through its 10-year whatever journey um, is not for everyone, and that's okay. And, uh, and maybe we should be supporting, um, you know, we should be more encouraging people joining startups necessarily than starting them themselves. Right. Seven to 10 years, people always talk about as that as an exit, and, and it's so true. So if you go back and look at your favorite IPO story, even those big successes are at seven, 10 years mm. in the time. And no one, tells, no one says no. that either. Like, all the stories you hear about, you know, in, in 18 years, they sold for a billion dollars, and that's what everyone believes, and that is not the norm. The norm is very weary, very tired, you know, very hardworking people that, scared every day that it's going to end and and that's what people need to understand if you still want to do it despite that you know yay it's <laughs> funny there's a i'm a big fan of uh, of mixed martial arts which is fighting sometimes they do it in a cage and there's an ultimate expression where one of the fighters he looks at someone and says so you want to be a fighter as in you have no idea what it takes to be a fighter. All you see is me on fight night knocking someone out. You don't see the pain. You don't see me getting knocked out. You don't see all this stuff. And so I always think like, so you want to be a tech startup? Yeah. You, you don't even know what you're getting into. Yeah. But, you know, it's good, to, it's good to let people know that. I know you like mentoring people, and I know you like mentoring women in the industry. For a while, I was asking women that came here about women in tech, but I, I think that's the wrong question. I think yes. people asking that question is, is, <sighs> is passing the buck down the road. And so... What, I, there just isn't. Sorry. There just isn't. Stop. There isn't a problem. I, I, I mean, the reason there aren't more women in technology, and I believe this, and this is again another 
hot topic is just that there's not more women that want to be. There is nothing that has ever stopped me or any of the women I work with getting into this industry other than lack of interest. So the one thing I do think that we can and should influence is um, changing that media bias um, and showing that there are um, creative, uh, exciting careers in technology for women and show those to younger girls who at the moment are watching you know, Gossip Girl and, and other TV shows where the female protagonist is a photographer or you know, a nurse or whatever. If we can kind of popularise that there are um, great, exciting, travel-filled careers for women, um, that's, that's a really good place to start. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I did what I wanted to do at university um, I, I have always done any career I wanted. Being a woman has been nothing but actually a blessing in this industry. Amen to that. Apparently Shark Tank is like one of the most popular shows in America now. And that's just about people pitching to like start companies. Apparently it's, it's very cool now. So I'm guessing all these children. That's great. Yeah. And then you look right? at the Marissa Myers and, and Joanna Shields and there's, you know, beautiful, sexy, strong, powerful, feminine women that are leading technology companies. I think that's a great thing. Right. Just like you. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to ask you one concept, something I call the immigrant mind. And it's this whole idea of immigrants when they go places, <clears throat> they, they show up at a country and they feel, they feel different. Because a lot of times they've got they've got no one to go home to. They've got no parents to go home to. They have a different language. They might start off with a PhD in one country, and now they're driving a cab, and they don't care. And I'm an immigrant in this country. Your parents were immigrants. Now maybe you're back to an immigrant. Of course, my great grandfather yeah. was from Cornwall, so maybe I'm not an immigrant. It's something that I always go through my mind, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that. I mean, America is by definition full of immigrants. Do you think there's a separate mindset, or do you think that's talked about in the wrong way? Oh. Um, and then the easy questions come after this. I like being a migrant, but that's only that's a personal thing because I just I, I quite like being different. Um, I don't know if that makes a difference work wise. I don't think. I mean, certainly as a young girl, um, being an immigrant um, and being you know the eldest child of immigrant parents was an incredible driving force behind being academically focused. Um, and you know, I, I did well at school because you know I was told off if I did not, you know, get 100% in every maths test sort of thing. Um, so there was certainly that which drove me to, you know, go to university and do well there. Um, but from a startup perspective, I think personally, I, I haven't, I don't believe anyway that that's factored in my journey, um, other than the fact that I'm very comfortable moving countries because I've done it so many times and I don't, I'm not leaving anyone behind in the UK when I moved to San Francisco or vice versa. Right. Understood. Um, Alethea, I always ask everyone here a few questions at the end. I'm going to hit you with these. These are the easy questions. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> if you could make a phone call to the 20 year old Alethea, I guess you were getting your computer science degree in yep. Sydney, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and give that young lady a bit of advice. What would you tell her to do? Um, I would say, don't worry. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I hear that a lot. I don't, uh, I'm not going to do anything differently, but it'd be really nice to know that, you know, just enjoy your 20s. You're going to be working hard in your 30s, so just really enjoy your 30, your 20s and, and don't don't put too much pressure on yourself. It's going to work out okay. okay. I, I often think if I, like, all I would want right now is an alien to come down from, you know, the, the universe and say to me, don't worry, like, it's all going to... And then it just, it, I think it'll change the way that you... It'll take all my worry away. Right. Then you I just focus on doing rather than worrying. Maybe the 60-year-old should call you now and give yes. you the same advice. Call me. Yeah. Right. Call me. Call <laughs> me. Tell me. Uh, on that same note, what's the best advice you've ever received, business or personal? Um, oh, you need to 
tell me ahead of time that this is going to happen. But then, then you would have these in the can, and everyone would be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I know, but then I, then I just, I'm This is the hardest one always. People were like, I oh, I don't know. Like, did you have a business mentor or someone that was like, okay, they taught me some ropes as far as this? Um... I mean, the one that I always say is the one I said earlier, I guess, which is don't worry about the valuation, just worry about being here tomorrow. And and that's, I think, probably been the most useful thing. It takes the ego away from the process. Like, I don't, I don't care what valuation is. I don't care. Like, you know, sometimes you think, gosh, you know, you see all these other companies that have got sky high, crazy ass valuations. And then you think, you know what, but they might, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm still here today. Uh, I'm still here tomorrow. I love what I do. And I need to take ego out of the equation and just focus on doing a good job. That's a great answer. Final question. And I asked this of everyone, and this is more relevant today, you know, to the 20 year old that's listening to us somewhere around the world on iTunes now (laughs) or on YouTube that wants to get into tech, you know, they're like, Oh, I'm interested. I'm watching Silicon real because I London in tech and I live in somewhere in the European union. And they're like, I want to do this. You know, what do you tell them? Because we're part of the media now, whether we like it or not. Being part of being in tech or being part of being an entrepreneur. Okay. Both being in tech, do it. It's awesome. Like to be part of the world that is creating our future, I think is, is one of the most creative things and important things to be doing right now. And that's the thing that people I think don't realize it's, it's incredibly creative and it's exciting. Um, you know, we're, we're doing something that, that matters and is advancing, you know, society forward. Um, so yes, tech, definitely entrepreneurship. If, if it's all that you've ever wanted to be and that nothing else will make you happy, then do it. And, you know, surround yourself by people that love you and make sure that you, balance your work life with things that keep you sane on the outside because you've got to be in it for the long run. Right. And it's going to be a journey. Be a journey. It's a lifestyle. You look back and go, wow, (laughs) it's what a ride, but you know, and at least it makes a great story. Right. Mm -hmm. Tragedy, (laughs) comedy. Oh my God. One day I am going to write a book of actually what the the real things that happen that you can never say in these kind of situations. One day. Really? Is it juicy? Oh, my Lord. People wouldn't believe. Stranger than fiction, as they say? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. My lawyers, who know everything, we sit there sometimes and have lunch and go, the things, the things. (laughs) No, I want to hear this stuff. All right, we're going to talk about this stuff after we turn the cameras off. Um, How can people get in touch with you? (laughs) Are you hiring? If they want to get some skim love, how do they do it? Yes, we're always hiring. Uh, Engineers, always very welcome. Uh, Hiring salespeople. Um, Just go to skimlinks.com slash careers, I think. And, uh, and you'll see photos of our team and learn a bit more about our culture. Okay. Do you tweet? Do people contact you? Do you mentor people? I know I'm opening up a Pandora's box here, but I mean, um, I'd love to say I do, but if, unfortunately, if I said yes to everyone, I would never have a moment of work done. So, um, I, uh, sometimes do. <laughs> okay. Now that's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Um, Alicia, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate My pleasure. it. Thank the, you. Uh, product's fascinating. So many of the people that, that listen to this and listen to London Real, you know, that they produce a lot of their own content and they really don't know what to do, you know, when it comes to generating revenue. And like we could go down a whole long road and we didn't really get into editorial versus making oh, yes. money and micropayments and bitcoins and all this stuff. So I, I guess we'll have to save that, that for another time. time. But they can check out um, your site, your product, and, and really yeah. get up the Yeah. I mean, the that. kind of publishers that, that do well with this are going to be like uh, fashion-oriented sites, um, uh, com- consumer electronic reviews, fashion, uh, lifestyle, um, uh, uh, entertainment, automotive, basically sites that are talking about things that can be bought uh, okay. are going to be the sites that tend to do well with us. 
Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. As we say on Silicon Real, it's about the people. Uh, You're definitely one of them. And uh, I wish you all the best in Skim Links. Thank you. Skim love. This week on Silicon Real, we have venture capitalist Nick Brisbane, founder of Forward Partners. We're there helping to build the company in a much more meaningful way than, than a, a traditional VC. From concept, raw idea, through to Series A. As investors, particularly if you're managing a large fund, you want to be in the, the best companies in the world. Hope without critical thinking is, critical thinking is, is naivety, and critical thinking without hope is cynicism. Striking the balance is key. Having great judgment is, is kind of one of the differences between success and failure, ultimately. The world is a smaller and smaller place every year. It's a marathon, not a sprint. On Monday, Silicon Reel presents... Nick Brisbane, Forward Partners. Slow down to speed up.